Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and oftentimes we've covered obviously what goes on in Pakistan in very deep, great detail. Um, we've had folks talk about what's going on in India and Bangladesh, but much like the rest of the South Asian community, I myself am guilty of sort of forgetting about or not paying attention to what happens in other South Asian countries. Um, and so today we're going to try to fix that and talk about Sri Lanka. Uh, which is an island nation that is very complicated politically, economically, geopolitically, um, its relationship with China, um, increasingly its previous history with India, with the United States, etc. All make it a very interesting, but also a very complex place to understand. So to talk about what's going on in Sri Lanka, what the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has been, and where things stand and where things are going, uh, in that island nation, I have with me Akhil Berry. Akhil is a dear friend and director of the South Asia Initiatives at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Um, he was previously at Eurasia Group and is someone who understands the broader South Asian region, including Sri Lanka, very well. So I figured I invite and bother Akhil today to share with us and, and help us understand what's going on in Sri Lanka. So Akhil, first of all, welcome to Pakistanomy and congratulations on your new role. Thanks so much, Uzair. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a long-time listener, huge fan. Um, so delighted to be a part of the program today. No, I, I am. I'm excited about having you here because I want to talk all things Sri Lanka. And if you if you sort of talk about you know what's going on there at a big picture level, right? Political crises, um, a family dynasty that's dominant, indebted to China. Many Pakistanis will think about all of that and say, well, that sounds like Pakistan. Like you know, it doesn't sound like Sri Lanka. So help us understand like what's going on in Sri Lanka at a big picture level and where do things stand over there? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. I mean, there are a lot of similarities between Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Um, so basically the way Sri Lanka is structured, it's, it's a presidential system and it had been going more towards devolving power towards the parliamentary system, towards the, the prime minister and the parliamentarians. Yet in 2000, in 2020, the pendulum began to shift towards the other side. So when from, I guess, after the Sri Lankan civil war, Mahinda Rajapaksa, so the Sri Lanka is really ruled by the Rajapaksa family, led by Mahinda Rajapaksa and his brother Gotabaya Rajapaksa. Mahinda used to be the president. Uh, he is now the prime minister. Gotabaya is the president. Um, and the third brother, Basil Rajapaksa, is also the finance minister. So you've got the family dynasty in control of the major levers of power. So Mahinda and Gotabaya are best known for their actions in the Sri Lankan civil war and ending the Sri Lankan civil war against the Tamil Tigers. Um, and this, the civil war ended in 2009, at which point Sri Lanka started to embark on a massive infrastructure push, um, started issuing sovereign debt, debt and taking on more and more debt to kind of finance and build itself up out of the, the civil war. In 2015 though, Mahinda surprisingly lost um, the election to the first time unity government amidst concerns that Sri Lanka was going more and more towards an authoritarian government. Um, except this um, coalition government that con consisted of Maitrapala Sirisena, who used to be an ally of uh, the Rajapaksas, and Ranil Wickram Singh, who led the United National Party, it failed on its inherent contradictions. And after the Easter bombing attacks in April 2019, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who was defense secretary, launched his campaign for president um, and spent the next um, 
seven months or so, really focusing on a campaign on and on a strongman security campaign to to get elected president. At the same time, there was a lot of infighting within the UNP as people wanted to move Ranal out of power and they couldn't agree on who the party leader would be. So for an election in November, um, the UNP alliance only selected its candidate in October. And October of, 20, uh, of 2019, which kind of laid the gra groundwork for Gotabaya to win a 10-point victory in the polls and win the presidency. Soon after, Ranil stepped down as prime minister and Mahinda came into power as prime minister. Um, this was his second attempt to be prime minister after an aborted coup effort in 2018, which led to a 50-day constitutional crisis. Um, so then you get to last year, um, and just before the pandemic hit, um, Go President Gotabaya Rajapaksa, as was his right, prorogued parliament um, and called for early elections that were supposed to happen in June. However, due to the pandemic, it kept getting postponed, kept getting postponed. And then Mahinda eventually won a two-thirds, along with allies, won a two-thirds majority um, vote in of the seats in parliament in August 2019, which allowed them to execute their main priority, which was um, the 20th in repealing the 19th amendment to the constitution and implementing the 20th and passing the and you mean amendment. you mean august 2020 right 2020 yes yeah. 2020 yeah. yeah yeah august 2020 and so their first policy priority was to enact the 20th amendment to the constitution which removed a key provision so one of the 19th amendment had swung it back towards the parliamentary system um the 20th amendment strengthened the pre the presidential role in the system sort of like France, where you have a very strong president and a not so strong prime minister. Um, at the same time, the 20th Amendment also removed a key restriction, which said that Amer that uh, dual citizens could not hold uh, office in Sri Lanka. So this was originally seen as a way for Gotabaya. That was originally a challenge to Gotabaya, so he had to give up his American citizenship in order to run for president. But by removing, um, removing that clause, it then paved the way for Basil Rajapaksa, the third Rajapaksa brother, to enter parliament as the finance minister recently, um, amidst speculation that he's going to run for pre president in the next election. So one of the big things that happened in Sri Lanka at that time, though, um, in the run-up to the parliamentary elections, is that Gotabaya Rajapaksa enacted a major tax, VAT tax cut. And this put a significant amount of strain on the government finances. Now, a tax cut, if done right, it could increase growth. But at, at a time when, right before um, the pandemic hit, of course, no one knew the pandemic was going to come. But it did put a major stress on, stress on government finances, which was already problematic, because if you think about Sri Lanka's system, about 58% of Sri Lanka's budget goes towards just paying the salaries of existing government employees. And when you add in pensions, it's about 80%. So, when you're already running a, a budget deficit, when you've already got a um, balance of payments deficit, this was not a wise move and it forced the IMF program to go off the rails. And since then, the government has really been, has refused to reimpose the, um, reverse the tax cuts, even despite the dwindling revenues. So it, it's basically, you know, you have a political sort of dynasty trying to consolidate power. The pandemic hits, they're trying to be populist by cutting taxes. Maybe the theory was tax cuts lead to growth, as we are familiar with the Republican argument yeah. here in the United States. Um, the pandemic obviously overturns everything. 
And now you have a situation where the currencies in free fall, tourism revenues are still not back. Um, and you have this dynasty sort of consolidating its, its grip on power. Um, help us understand sort of the overall impact of the pandemic. I was reading some stuff last night just to get familiar with what all has gone on. A lot has gone on in that country, yeah. right? Currently, there is shortage of essential foods because there's a balance of payments crisis. It can't import or pay for its imports. Um, there is obviously a currency crisis in terms of the value of the Sri Lankan currency. Um, and tourists are not back yet. How has um, the pandemic and how have the policies of this regime um, impacted the Sri Lankan economy? Yeah, I mean, it's there, there are two ways to look at it. One is the direct impact of COVID, but then two, the policies that were enacted to push back against COVID and how that's exacerbated the crisis. So, of course, COVID, COVID has hurt everyone. It's hurt every country. Um, it's even hurt many. It's hurt major tourist destinations such as the Maldives, Vietnam, et cetera. But in other ways, some of these countries have recovered and are starting to see tourists again, whereas Sri Lanka, it's not the case at all. So, of course, with, with COVID and tourism, um, Sri Lanka had been hiring tourism as a major source of foreign exchange revenue. Um, tourism um, counts for about 5% of the $81 billion economy. Um, then you also have the affiliated jobs with it. Tourism has always kind of been, there's always, Sri Lanka just always kind of misses the situation, um, misses the moment with tourism. So for example, it started to build itself up as a tourism destination after um, the civil war, but then of course you had the unfortunate Indian Ocean tsunami. Then, oh sorry, that was actually before. So you had the Indian Ocean tsunami, you had um, the end of the civil war, you had the constitutional crisis, and then you had the Easter bombing, and now you have COVID. And so you have all these situations that have depressed the tourist in tourism industry. And it, tourism is the third largest source of foreign exchange in Sri Lanka behind remittances and garment exports. And so tourism, it has not recovered at all. Um, so just to put it into context, um, normally speaking, Sri Lanka sees about 2 million tourists a year, two to two and a half million tourists a year. This year, there's only been about 24,000 tourists. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, so for example, um, August saw the highest number of tourists this month, this year, with only about 5,000 visiting. For contrast, um, and that, that was the same in January, only about 4,000 tourists came. For contrast, last, in January last year, there were about 228,000 tourists who came. So that, I mean, that really puts it into perspective. I mean, and you're not only talking about the source of foreign exchange, you're talking about all the affiliated jobs um, that come with the tourist industry. I mean, so after the constitutional crisis and after the Easter bombing, I remember I went to Sri Lanka and the government was trying to encourage domestic tourism to make up for the shortfall of foreign tourists. Now, of course, you, even though the vaccination campaign has really taken off, Sri Lanka was one of those countries that was relying on India for vaccines, but the vaccines didn't come. And so it had to rely on donations from China, from uh, Russia. And to Sri Lanka's credit, its vaccination progress is actually faster than the US is right now. Similar, and it's, I believe it's the fastest in all of South Asia. So it's able to execute when it has the vaccines. But the problem is, I mean, with the Delta variant rampaging through the economy right now, Sri Lanka is again in a lockdown. Um, and this is, I mean, yes, the garment sector, which is also a major source of, of foreign exchange of revenue, the gar, um, 
this, I mean, all this leads to an exacerbation of the crisis, then, I mean, tourism is probably not going to come back this year because Sri Lanka still remains on travel warning lists for the EU, for the UK, which are which were some of the major sources of tourism. Chinese tourists have not come. Indian tourists have also not come. But even if they do, they're not spending the type of money Sri Lanka needs. And so this is a huge, huge crisis. They've tried to do some pilot schemes. So uh, former uh, Rajapaksa's cousin used to be the ambassador to Ukraine. So he initiated the pilot project where Ukrainian tourists could come under a bubble agreement. But again, it, it really didn't pan out. And on, upon arrival, these tourists tested positive for COVID. So it, it's really been a disaster that way. Similarly, garment exports, a huge source, of, as I mentioned, it's the second largest source of foreign exchange revenue. Um, that, has, that also took a hit from COVID, from the cancellation of orders um, in the EU. We've saw, we saw this with Bangladesh as well. While yes, it is starting to recover. Um, so, I mean, I, I believe that garment exports are up about 58% in the first half of this year over last year. But again, it's with the institution of more lockdowns, it's it's going to be hard for this to take to take hold. And sorry, it's up 28%. The other thing I would also point out here is that Sri Lanka potentially loses GSP plus benefits in the EU. As you know, the Generalized System of Preferences program is a preferential trade program. Normally it excludes textiles. The EU has GSP plus, and you know this from Pakistan, is that Pakistan exports to the EU under that agreement as well. Because of the human rights situation in Sri Lanka, it may lose um, benefits. The EU is opening it up to investigation of if it should still receive those GSP plus benefits. So that's kind of the COVID side of the equation. But now there's also how the mismanagement of the crisis um, led to the current situation. So as you, as you mentioned, I mean, there, the government has declared a food emergency. There is a massive uh, foreign exchange shortage right now. So Bangladesh's, uh, sorry, Sri Lanka's uh, foreign exchange reserves sit at about three and a half billion dollars, but those are being artificially inflated by the receive, receiving about $767 million from the IMF special drawing rights. Um, that was when, so the special drawing rights are basically an IMF currency that countries can use um, to convert into hard currencies, such as dollar reserve currencies. Um, and Sri Lanka has used it to convert, it, to bolster its foreign exchange reserves to try to repay off its foreign debt. Then also it's got its reserves are boosted by $150 million from currency swap from Bangladesh, Bangladesh's first ever currency swap. But again, this is all just band-aids on the largest, on the larger problem. Sri Lanka does not have the money for imports. And there, while it made its debt repayments this year, next year is what is always been identified as the challenging one. So there's a $1 billion euro bond maturing in January. There's another one maturing in July. Right now, there's barely enough foreign exchange reserves to cover two months worth of export, yeah, imports, meaning it's a question of when, not if they run out of reserves. And you've seen this in the default risk. I mean, the default risk is about 28% right now. Next year, they've got a total of $3.6 billion worth of payments, uh, uh, foreign debt repayments due. And they're averaging four to five billion dollars over the next four to five years. That's significant for a country like Sri Lanka. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the IMF program is inactive right now, right? They're yeah. not part of it. So it's not that you know they have the IMF backing to roll over their two billion that is maturing next year and go back to the Eurobond market and say, 
let's roll it over maybe 50 basis points, 100 basis points above the premium we paid last time. And exactly, and that, that is the, the big question right now is why hasn't Sri Lanka gone to the IMF? So when, when I talk with people, one of the, the main analogies I, I think of is when Imran Khan came to power in 2019, he, he sought to avoid the IMF, right? So he went to Saudi Arabia, he went to Turkey, he went to China, he went to Malaysia, seeking debt, seeking debt relief um, loans, et cetera, in a bid to avoid going to the IMF. It was only after Assad Umar got replaced as finance minister that the writing was on the wall that Pakistan would approach the IMF. The same situation is here in Sri Lanka, and you have to wonder what is the government thinking that it's not going to approach the IMF. And of course, I mean, other policies that they've done have affected their foreign exchange reserves. Um, so for example, the, go the government has basically imposed capital controls. Um, it has banned the import of non-essential goods and has tried to promote economic agenda items like growing turmeric or, or banning imports of chemical fertilizers in a bid to go 100% um, organic fertilizer. The problem with that, though, is that a organic farming is much more expensive than regular farming, but b, the government expects to save about 300 to 400 million dollars in foreign exchange reserves based on that. But b, the problem is is that now that there has there isn't the fertilizer for the tea industry, and tea is one of Sri Lanka's major imports exports. Um, it brings in about one and a half billion dollars worth of foreign exchange revenue every single year, and you have plantation owners on the government's own advisory board on organic organic farming saying that there could be a major crop devastation in October affecting the ability of them to export more tea. Um, and that could also affect cinnamon, pepper, rice, other major Sri Lanka staples. And so all so you have that, then you also have a 9% depreciation of the currency, which again has made imports more expensive. Um, it's just it's a major source of concern for the government and they don't seem to have a true grasp of what the economic situation is instead denying it saying that things aren't as bad as the media points out um refusing to go to the imf because i mean two things one it would go it would violate one of gotabaya rajapaksa's um campaign pledges where he sought to hire ten thousand new government workers i mean as i mentioned you have the major situation of how much money is already going into the public sector and they want to expand it, then it the IMF would also likely ask for, um, for privatizing SOEs. Government isn't willing to do that. And then it would also ask for the devaluation of, of the rupees. So if you look at the official exchange rate, it's about 200 rupees to a dollar, 200 Sri Lankan rupees to a dollar. But on the black market, it's about 216, 217 because importers are also now holding on to their foreign exchange. The import crisis is another huge issue. And so basically you have another eight, nine percent, maybe more to go in terms of depreciation for the black market to match up to what is in the open market. Yeah. Um, but it also seems like it's one of those situations where it's not the government that is what, what they're thinking about the IMF, right? Basically the Rajapaksa brothers, because the three of them are running the show. So I wonder what they're thinking about things. Um, you mentioned GSP plus and, and the investigation from the EU on the human rights uh, violations. Um, help us understand like what that situation has been like. Obviously, Sri Lanka fought a bloody civil war. The Rajapaksa played a crucial role in ending that war. 
um, at times using brutal tactics against the Tamil Tigers. But in recent years, we've seen sort of a armed Buddhist militia emerge that has been targeting Muslims. I remember reading some reports early on in the pandemic about Muslims not being allowed to bury their dead and their bodies were burned without the uh, permission of their family members, etc. And so there's been a lot of like tension around militant Buddhism and the fact that it has gone after uh, Muslims. And then, of course, we had the Easter bombing. So there is the issue around radical Islam on the island as well. So for many of us don't understand that there is a very complicated ethnic religious sort of tensions on the ground in Sri Lanka. So help us understand what that looks like and what the role of this particular government um, and the Rajapaksas has been in either exacerbating these tensions or sort of trying to smooth them over. Yeah, so, I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, the Sri Lankan civil war was between um, the, the ethnic Sinhalese population and the Tamils. Um, there, I mean, there are two types of Tamils in Sri Lanka. There's the Sri Lankan Tamils um, and then also the ethnic Tamils who originate from India. And so, I mean, the Sri Lankan civil war was fought on the ethno-nationalism ground. But after, after 2009, when the, when the civil war ended, Buddhist monks started to target the threat posed by Muslims, demonizing them, saying that their practices um, are go against um, Sri Lanka's culture, go against Sri Lanka's heritage and history. And while there were, I mean, while there was some attempt, some attempt at reconciliation. So again, in the previous coalition government, I still remember Mangala, uh, who used to be the the finance minister, he unfortunately just passed away. After the Easter bombing attacks, he went and sat with Muslim families the next day because he knew that there would be reprisal against them and he wanted to show solidarity of support between the government and the Muslim community. But the April 2019 attacks really were a turning point, I would say, because this was also the first time that there was sectarian violence of minority and minority attacks. Um, so Sri Lanka, while it's dominated by Sinhalese Buddhists, it does have a Christian minority and it also has a Muslim minority. And it was seen as an attack by the Muslim minority on the, on the Christian minority. Um, there were warning signs for the government. There are a lot of conspiracy theories out there. But at the end of the day, it was a massive intelligence failure. And then there was mass reprisals against, against Muslims. And the Rajapaksas saw this as an opportunity to exploit this and really push their ethno-Sinhalese nationalist identity. And that has unfortunately continued during the, re during the regime. Um, especially, and it, we've seen this as a tried and true tactic, tested tactic elsewhere in South Asia, where if you are faced with an economic crisis, if you're trying to distract attention from what's going on on the ground, you find another source of, uh, of the fo of focus. And for the Rajapaksas, the Muslim community is an easy target. And so you're right. So when, when the COVID pandemic hit, despite there being no scientific evidence about cremation, about bearing bodies spreading COVID, the government mandated that every, everyone who died of COVID needed to be cremated, even Muslims. And as, I mean, as you can speak about much more, much better than I, it goes against the religious beliefs. And you've also had situations where Sri Lankan ministers have announced burqa bans and saying that they'll shut all, thousand Islamic schools. They've laid a backtrack, but given that the Tamils are no longer are not seen as as much of a threat, there is still racism against Tamils in Sri Lanka. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there just two days ago, 
um, the state minister for prisons walked into the prison with a gun and forced Tamil prisoners um, to bow down to him. He was fired from his position as, as minister for prisons, but he still retains his role as an MP. So the Rajapaksas have really sought to exploit this, this Sinhalese nationalist and want to see it as the dominant practice on the island. It's almost like, you know, um, you mentioned the rest of South Asia is in similar playbooks. It's like, you know, find a common enemy and then, you know, yeah. like our previous colonial masters, the British, like divide and rule. So, you know, okay, the civil war is over. Let's find a new enemy. And the new enemy happens to be Muslims and pit Christian against Muslim and then see if some of the Christians will vote for us. And all of a sudden you have a super majority in parliament or two thirds of the seats, right? And of course, there are other issues. I'm simplifying all of that, but it's at a macro level, that's like the strategy that's that's followed time and time again. Um, so we have all of this going on, that's internal. And then, you know, we have a, a dynasty sort of at the helm of affairs, tensions, economic issues, uh, country on the brink of default. And all, in all of that, you have the geopolitics of the Indian Ocean. You have India, yeah. you have the United States with the Quad, you have China, which has obviously played a big, big, big role in the Sri Lankan economy, lent it a lot of money and almost, you know, taken over a port, um, all of that. So how is Sri Lanka now with the Rajapaksas and A, where do they align? Are they pro-India? Are they pro-US? Are they pro-China? Where, where are their personal allegiances lie? Um, and also overall, has there been a shift in the Sri Lankan outlook geopolitically where, you know, hold on, they're saying we've sort of gone too far into the Chinese camp, but maybe we need to, you know, change course or is it still like China's our best friend and therefore all the funding comes from there and maybe the next two billion that you talked about that they need to roll over may come from the Chinese as well. What is the Sri Lankan geopolitical strategy right now? <laughs> um, so the way I like to present it is think of it as a scale. And you've got 50 percent you've got india china so i would say sri lanka is about 70 percent towards china right now um so the rajapaksas are very pro-china and this has come despite india's best efforts so when when gotabaya was elected president the very next day foreign minister jay shankar was on a plane to um to Sri Lanka to say to extend congratulations and give warm wishes from Prime Minister Modi. Similarly, when Mahinda was elected Prime Minister, before the election results were even announced, Modi was the first person on the phone to him. And with when Modi was elect was re-elected Prime Minister in 2019, he was actually the first foreign visitor to visit Sri Lanka after the Eastern Easter bombing attack. Um, and that that was kind of a change because normally a Sri Lankan leader's first port of first call of entry is to India to to kind of pay to pay their respects and work on on um, the geopolitical strategy. But in this case, Modi made Sri Lanka and the Maldives his immediate priority. Sent his foreign minister the very next day and was the first one on on the phone. Yet, despite this, I mean, there are a lot of tensions in the India-Sri Lanka relationship, and a lot of that is due to China. So, despite the fact that India has um, has kind of made the outreach to Sri Lanka, and the Rajpaksas have said that they won't take an anti-India foreign policy, that really hasn't been the case. I mean, the, the most notable case recently was the cancellation of the Eastern Container Terminal Project by Sri Lanka. 
that was a huge Indian foreign policy priority. It was going to be developed in conjunction with Japan. Um, and it would be 49% held by India Japan and would be um, it would be held by the Sri Lankan port holding company. But that was canceled under pressure from, from China. Similarly, Sri Lanka has sought debt relief from India. It sought a suspension of, of debt repayments to India, but India has not acted on any of those requests, kind of wanting to see how the situation unfolds in Sri Lanka. And, and it doesn't help that you're seeking debt relief from a country whose projects you're canceling at the same time. Exactly. And it's the same thing with Japan, is that Sri Lanka has canceled the light, canceled the light rail terminal project, light rail project, which was Japanese funded, saying that it, it was too costly, which is kind of ironic. But again, like you're, you're kind of canceling these projects, making decisions that go against them, and yet asking for help. So it, it really doesn't make too much sense there. Sri Lanka was able to get a currency swap once from, uh, from India, but this was from the Reserve Bank of India, and it was done through the SARC mechanism. Um, it was a $400 million currency swap. It was extended once, and then Sri Lanka paid, repaid it um, two days before the decision on the Eastern Containment Terminal Project. When you see the Indian, the, there was a press release from the Indian High Commission in Colombo that said, we cannot issue another currency swap unless Sri Lanka has an IMF program in place. Um, unlike others, we respect our international commitment. Sri Lanka's view was that after a six month cooling off period, it could apply for that $400 million currency swap again um, in an effort to artificially boost its reserves, but then also saying it's not going to the IMF. So you can't have all three things be true. You can't have India saying no currency swap without the IMF. You can't have Sri Lanka saying currency swap and you can't have Sri Lanka saying no IMF. So one of those doesn't work. And it's clear that the no currency swap without IMF is winning that right now. So, so I mean, do, did you, yeah. No, I was gonna ask, like, do you see um, a change coming at any point in time in terms of Sri Lanka's own outlook towards how it needs to have a relationship with India? It's obviously Bangladesh has given a currency swap um, and in general, where the winds are blowing, like, is it basically a firm calculus of the Sri Lankan elite, mainly the Rajapaksa family, that they have to be 70, 80, 90 percent in the Chinese camp because that's where they are and that's where the country's future lies? Or is there a debate within Sri Lanka that says, look, maybe we ought to balance things off a bit because this is not something we want to do, be beholden to one party in this, in this emerging strategic rivalry? Well, I mean, that it's, it's really interesting you bring that up because that was exactly the debate about the Port City Bill. So China's been building the Colombo Port City since uh, President Xi Jinping visited Sri Lanka in 2014. Um, and sought, and I mean, this will sound familiar to you about when you think about the CPEC authority and how it has kind of that extra, like extra legal out, it's out of the legislative process. It's a, it's a separate body designed to oversee and per, and kind of formulate tax laws, formulate um, uh, investment proposals, um, and also give immunity to those on the commission. And as and, we've seen, it doesn't really work. Exactly. But this, this is the way that Sri Lanka was going, uh, because this was a longstanding Chinese priority. And again, they there were a number of MPs from the opposition parties and from the Tamil Alliance who raised concerns saying like this, this is going to um, impede Sri Lanka's sovereignty. Um, and the Supreme Court actually voted, ruled against this saying that, look, 
unless you amend the bill, um, these clauses need to need to go to a constitutional referendum and have a two-thirds vote. Rather than put it up to that, the, gov the government issued some of the amendments, including ex um, of the seven-member commission, five of them will be appointed by the president, two will be appointed by Ch the Chinese. But again, they have legal immunity. There's no legislative oversight. So there is some tension within Sri Lanka, but within the ruling Rajapaksa family, I mean, they have a long long history with, with China. I mean, again, they defeated the Tamils in the Sri Lankan Civil War, and China was the only one willing to invest in Sri Lanka at that time. And so they went to China for loans. They went to the international sovereign bond market for loans. And this actually is an interesting story about Hamad Toto, which I'll get to in a second. But so China and the Rajapaksas have had a very long-standing relationship. But China has also kind of hedged its bets and formulated partnerships with every single party in Sri Lanka. All you need to do is look at um, the Zoom call of, on the celebration of the 100th anniversary of the CCP. Every single political party, for the most part, most political parties were representative, representative there. I believe only the Tamil National Alliance was not represented. And it's, I mean, it's, it's ludicrous what else is happening. I mean, the Sri Lankan government has produced, the Central Bank of Sri Lanka minted a coin to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the communist, the Chinese Communist Party. It's, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> so it's, it's hard to see them not kind of being too close to China, despite them saying that they are going to pursue an Indocentric foreign policy, that they're not going to make decisions that upset India. In reality, the situation is much more complicated. Then you have the U.S. in this, I mean, and the U.S.-Sri Lankan relationship is tepid at best because the U.S. focuses on reconciliation as the core of its foreign policy towards Sri Lanka, believing that there needs to be reconciliation between the Sri Lankan nationalists, the Sinhalese nationalists, and the Tamils, and the implementation of kind of the representation um, amendments and also stopping the human rights abuses against the Tamils, whereas the Sinhalese nationalists see it as an affront to them. They they see the Tamils as terrorists and they did their job in ending the Sri Lankan civil war and now you want us to reconcile with them. So there's always that sort of tension. And in the Trump administration, things kind of came to a head a little bit. The Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was scheduled to visit Sri Lanka once. That visit was canceled over concerns about this Millennium Challenge Corporation grant. And eventually he did make it over there to fly the flag and say, hey, we're not going to let any territory go undefended against in our ideological battle against China. But so it, he was met with a frosty reception. It went as poorly as you can imagine. And soon enough, the, the U.S. canceled the Millennium Challenge Corporation grant. Millennium Challenge Corporation grant was a, about a $400 million loan that was going to design, going to help Sri Lankan agricultural practices, help women um, entrepreneurs, et cetera. It got roiled up in a political debate about this status of forces agreement, which was not, which did not exist. But it became a convenient talking point. The status of forces agreement would give legal immunity to U.S. Um, soldiers on who visited Sri Lanka. It didn't exist. The, re the reason the Millen Challenge Corporation grant failed is that the Sri Lankan government, desperate for tax revenue, wanted every single project um, for that was funded by the MCC to be taxed in essence, also potentially fueling corruption, whereas the U.S. said, no, all these projects need to be tax-free so that the money goes directly to the project. And it was that impasse 
that saw the saw the NPC go, go away. Do you think at some point, like you know, I look at the broader South Asian policy of the United States beyond minus India for the time being, as being sort of all over the map in the sense that you have a strategic rival that is willing to put money on the table and at times not even ask questions about that table. And meanwhile, the strategic rival to this, China, the United States continues to talk about things in terms of ideological issues, in terms of issues related to reconciliation, inclusivity. All those things are great, right? I mean, we're all for fostering better treatment of minorities and for reconciliation on the ground and, and getting rid of the political cleavages that exist in a society. But when you are met with the strategic rival that is sort of, you know, giving you a run for your money in all of these countries, what do you think about the strategy where it says, you know what, like, here is China giving you all this money and we're going to make things contingent upon whether you pursue reconciliation or do you think that's a bit like 90s era diplomacy where the US didn't really have a rival ideologically and now it's still using the same strategy in an era where there are other options on the table? Sort of. And I mean, I think like you have to think of it as there's also increased US-India coordination in the region, right? I mean, like on that trip, Pompeo announced that um, there was going to be a separate embassy open in the Maldives, which I think is a very, is a very big deal because I mean, uh, the US interests in the Maldives were executed by the embassy in Sri Lanka. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the U.S. has yet to formulate a coherent Sri Lanka policy. And I think India has also kind of worried about what's happening there and has encouraged the U.S. to play a bigger role there. But give, I mean, given how far gone Sri Lanka has been to the CC, to China, I think the question is, is what sorts of investments can you make? And because Japan has made strategic investments in Sri Lanka. Actually, Japan is the single, uh, until recently, I believe, Japan was the single largest creditor to Sri Lanka. But it still hasn't seen the policy, par the policy implemented that would favor Japan. Instead, they've just gone to the, gone to the Chinese. Um, I think part of that is because of the cultivation relationships across the political spectrum, whereas the U.S., I think, kind of was was encouraging the previous government, um, the coalition government. It did not have great relations with the Rajapaksas. Um, so, I mean, I think there, there needs to kind of be some, a hard look at the US's South Asia strategy as a whole. I think now with um, Assistant Secretary Don Liu confirmed, I think there will be kind of be a more of an reevaluation of the policy. But I think through the Trump administration, it was so much defined by, we don't want to see, we don't want to lose to China. That kind of impeded the, their ability to make actual strategic gains. Yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful that, you know, at least having somebody leading the helm of affairs may lead to a coherent strategy. We'll, we'll see what comes in the next few months on that front. Um, in terms of where things go next, um, where do you see things headed to in Sri Lanka, let's say in the next 12 to 18 months? Obviously, the loans issue is there. Food crisis is still there, not abating. We are sort of at the peak of this commodity cycle boom, which is affecting inflation all over the world, um, including South Asia at large. Um, so, you know, but as you explained wonderfully that the Rajapaksa dynasty is firmly in charge. Um, so it, are they going to continue consolidating power? Are there risks to their rule? Like what, what comes next? So the, 
as we've seen in India, one of the biggest the biggest problems in the system is that there isn't a coherent opposition. Um, the Rajapaksas dominate because there hasn't been anyone also to fill the void and tap into any potential anger. I think the parallels between the SJB in Sri Lanka and the Congress Party are quite quite striking, actually. I mean, you've got Sejit Prendasa, who leads the SJB. Um, his father was formerly the president of Sri Lanka. He was assassinated. Um, but Sejit has not shown kind of the same political chops. At the same time, this debate about the Port City Bill was going on. He was out taking pictures of Sri Lanka's wildlife, talking about the- I was going to say, was he also yeah. doing push-ups? <laughs> he was taking photographs of elephants. <laughs> like close enough. Is, yeah, that, it, 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 and it, so I mean, and the, that is that is the inherent problem is that it's I mean, and it's also the same MPs and the switching parties being being kind of involved in power. So I, I mean, to give you a great example, so Basil Rajapaksa after the Twentieth Amendment, an MP resigns in order to make way for Basil to enter into parliament as finance minister. And he was actually appointed finance minister before being appointed to parliament. So, so wait, he, sorry to, uh, yeah. but I want, this is just a question popped in my head. If an MP resigns from parliament, you have to still run for an election, correct? Or is this like a no. Senate position? Okay, you just nominated to take that seat over. Yeah. So it's similar to what happens in Pakistan when, you know, I mean, it, have, it was gonna happen with Hafiz Sheikh when yeah. he was finance minister, his term was over. He had to become a senator, and then obviously shenanigans happened in the Senate, and he did not. And it's the same thing with Shaukat Tarin now, yeah. which is he's finance minister, and he needs a legislative seat. So they're going to get somebody to resign in the Senate to put him up there. So it's similar to the Pakistani system in that sense. Yes, yeah, exactly. There's there's a national list, basically. I mean, so they're, they're elected MPs, and there's also a national list. Um, and so a member of the an MP on the national re list resigned. Basil came in, was appointed a member of parliament, became finance minister. Then just yes, uh, two days ago, actually yesterday, um, Ajit Cabral, who used to be the Central Bank of Sri Lanka governor, was the state minister for money and capital markets um, and has been one of the, the leading people saying no to the IMF, despite his working relationship with the IMF. He just resigned as um, an MP to take back over as Central Bank of Sri Lanka governor. And the MP who resigned for Basel is now back in Parliament. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So I think the biggest threat to the Rajapaksa's rule right now, as is the case across South Asia, is food inflation um, and the food and me medicine shortage and kind of the inability to finance imports. So, I mean, the food and medicine shortage is really caused by a sharp depreciation in the currency the shortage of the foreign currency and banks don't have the capacity to open letters of credit of, on behalf of importers anymore as the central bank of sri lanka is not lending to private banks they're not giving them any dollars banks don't have any enough dollar reserves to lend importers are also not able to buy dollars at forward rates because of the rapid depreciation and 20 percent of sri lanka's imports are for consumption which means that I mean, the, the import ban doesn't make sense. So infl food inflation right now is at about 11%. And this is also one of the problems. The Central Bank of Sri Lanka, in its, in its efforts to pay off foreign debt, has been printing money. So Sri Lanka is, is very much focusing on trying to be the case study for modern monetary theory 
in an emerging market in a frontier market and which by the way anyone who's read lmp <laughs> will tell you it's not going to work because you do not have monetary sovereignty your debt is not in your own currency do not please do not try this strategy exactly and sri lanka is the best case study for why you shouldn't do that um so i mean it's led to an immediate loss of foreign exchange reserves inflation has spiked and now there aren't even buyers for domestic debt i mean so on August, in at the end of August, the central bank printed 29 billion rupees after raising rates to about six percent. And then on 30, 30th August, it failed to, it failed to sell 92 percent of a 50 billion rupee Sri Lanka wow. rupee bond. Um, so I mean, and so I mean, you've got this, you've got a food shortage. There is there is literally no medicine on the shelves, and I think that is the biggest threat to the Rajapaksa regime is kind of this really devastating economic mismanagement. Though, as we've seen in India, when there isn't a coherent opposition to tap into that anger, they skate through. And I'm, indeed, I mean, the Rajapaksas are kind of setting the stage for, so Mahinda was, pre, uh, was president, he's now prime minister. Gotha is president. The question is, will he run again? He originally committed himself to one term. Um, now he's opening the door for two terms, but he's, in any case, Basil Rajapaksa, the third brother, is like is going to be running. And then after him comes Namal Rajapaksa, who's a minister for sports, um, and um, is also um, Mahinda's son. And I think, like, I mean, kind of the tone deafness of the Sri Lankan elite, right, in the Rajapaksa, it's quite something. As the country is facing a food shortage, you have an MP saying that you should cut back up on meals per day and have two meals instead of three. Meanwhile, Mahinda has gone to Italy for a G20 interfaith m- meeting uh, and has taken his wife and others with him. Basil, uh, Gotha is also, was also out of the country and Namal went to the Tokyo Olympics. So it's a question of kind of, the le- it's, it's almost becoming a let them eat cake situation. I think that is perhaps the biggest threat to the Rajapaksa regime. I think you're starting to see some frustrations with their coalition partners. So the Sri Lankan Freedom Party um, which used to be allied with the Raja, with the Rajapaksa, which used to be the Rajapaksa's party, but then Ma- Maitrapala betrayed Mahinda in 2015. Then the Rajapaksa's formed the SLPP with their supporters, and then the SLFP went back to contest um, the presidential and parliamentary elections. They're sh- starting to show some signs of frustration, but ultimately, the situation on the ground is so bad, and there is a huge potential for default, and. They keep, I mean, all you need to do is look at the adversarial tone that Cabral took after the repayment of the last sovereign bond, saying like, see, everyone said we wouldn't pay it, all like Fitch, Moody's, all those external guys, and anyone who sold their debt, our debt, they've got crow on their face. But that was never the problem. The problem is next year. You, I think they're going to make the billion dollar payment in January, but beyond that, where are they getting the money from? Tourism is down. Exports potentially get hit. You've got the tea sector, another foreign exchange that's also going to get hit by bad economic policies. And they have yet to answer where is the money going to come from? Yeah, I think it's going to be a tricky situation, especially with the fertilizer issue that you you sort of, if the crop starts failing, then you have real massive issues in in rural parts of the country as well. Um, Akhil, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation about everything Sri Lanka. I think it's a masterclass. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you so much for taking out the time. And before I let you go, I, as I ask all my guests, as you are well familiar as a listener of the podcast, 
what are two or three books that have deeply influenced you? Can be on any topic, but please recommend some reading material for our audience. So I think for me, the first book is India at the High Table, which was written by my old boss, Tezzy Schaefer, um, and her late husband, Ambassador, Howard, Ambassador Tezzy Schaefer and Ambassador Howard Schaefer, um, because it gives an insight into how India conducts negotiations. And I think that's important, especially as kind of India pursues a new trade strategy as it was pursuing a trade deal with the U.S. Um, so it's really, it's, it's a fascinating look at that. Um, the other, I would say, um, and this is actually a Pakistan book, um, Declan Walsh's Nine Lives of Pakistan. And for me, that was a really fascinating book because as, as you and I have talked about, I was very unfamiliar with the political and economic dynamics in Pakistan. And that was a good introductory book for me to kind of learn more of the dynamics and kind of understand the stories of Pakistan itself. Thank you. Yeah, I've read Declan's Nine Lives and it was a well-written, I think, um, usually um, foreign journalists who write about Pakistan sort of, you know, use the same old, same old playbook and Declan did a masterful job of not following that and sort of telling a series of stories that you know, even as someone who follows Pakistan has lived there, it was fascinating to read because it was an insight into sort of the elite game of thrones and the elite yeah. shenanigans that happened in Pakistan. And Declan obviously was a witness to much of that or a secondhand witness to much of that. So it was great to see him write and cover this in, in such amazing way. I have not read India Dietable. I will add that to my list, but it sounds like a fascinating read. Um, so thank you for those recommendations. And again, thank you for taking out the time and joining us here on Pakistanomy. Thanks so much for having me. Pre really appreciated it. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks. You too.